It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Good afternoon and welcome to Talent Talk. Of course, I would say good afternoon and I say happy Tuesday, but I know most of you actually get us after the fact, right? You get us maybe not when we're live. Some of you tune in live and we appreciate it, but many of you connect with us through our podcast or watching one of the live streams after the fact. So whenever you're coming in, welcome. We appreciate you being here. You know, Talent Talk uh, has been for many, many years a place where I'm fortunate enough to have a really cool conversation with maybe a CEO, an entrepreneur, an author, an HR professional, business leader, someone really cool who is thinking about talent, who is working with talent um, and can teach us something, help us think about uh, maybe something we, we should be considering for the future, maybe something that's going on right now in the marketplace that you know we should be addressing. Uh, and so it's that conversation that hopefully you all can learn from, uh, interact from, maybe find a cool person to connect with on LinkedIn and be able to keep that conversation going. We are this year, 2022, kind of adding to our repertoire of where we are sending out this this, uh, interview. And so you can catch us live on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Any of those places are places like to hang out. Make sure sure you subscribe or connect with me. Uh, Otherwise, we turn this into a podcast afterwards and it goes into iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places where you can find your podcast. And so if you like to do that kind of thing, well, make sure you subscribe there so you always get alerted when there's a new episode and when we have that ready to go. I've really been fortunate with all of the interviews over the years to get so many incredible stories and examples of of just fantastic leadership, uh, what makes a great company culture, how to do remote work. All this stuff has culminated into my books. Um, So if you'd like to check those out, The Power of Company Culture or Remote Work, wherever you buy your books. We'd love to have you check those out and let me know what you think. Talent Talk is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, as we mentioned. But, um, uh, you know, we we do get most of you kind of coming in later. So uh, make sure you are commenting or letting us know uh, whenever you get that. If we're, we've missed something, there's a guest we should be interviewing, a question we should be asking. Uh, we love our guests, our, our audience input it really does help. My guest today uh, will be uh, Alyssa Cohn, CEO of Alyssa Cohn & Associates. And then after the commercial break, we'll bring in uh, Troy Nix. He's the founder, president, and CEO of First Resources, uh, an innovative associated management company uh, for America's manufacturers. But let's go ahead and welcome my first guest, as I said, Alyssa Cohn. Um, And if you are uh, phonetically or even spelling challenged. Her last name is C-O-H-N. 
Um, and good thing my my assistant had it in there correctly for me. Again, she's the CEO of Alyssa Cohen and Associates. She's named the number one startup coach in the world at the Thinkers 50 Marshall Goldsmith's Leading Coach Awards in London. Of course, we've had Marshall on the show many times. We've had many Thinkers 50s uh, 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 members on this show. So just ecstatic to have her here. And she was also named one of the top 30 global gurus for startups. So Alyssa's clients include Venmo, Etsy, Pfizer, Dell, Calvin Klein, the New York Times. You might have recognized one of those names, maybe one of them, right? I mean, there's just just a few there. But let's go ahead and bring her in. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you? What's what did I miss? What's important for people to know, you know, just to kind of set the tone for our conversation today about what you're passionate about, what you what you do, what, what does it look like, you know, in a day, day in the life of, of Alyssa? I guess I would say, first of all, from a coaching perspective, what I'm really passionate about is helping people figure out, people, companies, and teams figure out where they are, where they're going, and how they're going to get there. I'm a very analytical thinker, as well as maybe an empathetic sort of shoulder to cry on as a coach as necessary. But I really think a lot about forward motion. So that's kind of what I care about. As part of that, I'm also, I would say, uh, my religion is self-development, personal development. I, I take that for myself as well as other people. And what people don't always know about me is that I'm also obsessed with kettlebells. I love kettlebells. I work out every day with kettlebells. So that's how I stay strong. And I'm also the creator of a rap music video called The Work Is In You, because Chris, the work is in you. Did not expect all of that information. We went from what seemed obvious, right, and working with clients to kettlebells to a rap uh, video. So uh, this is why I love interviewing, uh, you know, cool people because they usually have a lot of stuff going on. So how did you get into kettlebells? I don't, I think the last time I was really exposed to that was uh, Tim Ferriss was for a while really kind of pushing that as a part of his uh, four-hour body book, right? That was a, you know, if you can only do one thing, use the kettlebell kind of thing. Is that... How did yes. you get started with that? Yes, actually, uh, Tim and I have had many hours of, uh, let's say, passionate conversation about our both of our combined love of kettlebells. Um, <laughs> so yes to Tim and Tim Ferriss and kettlebells. But I came to kettlebells before I really even knew about Tim Ferriss. I was a runner and um, I developed osteoarthritis in my right knee. And I just, and they told me, game over, give me your running shoes. And I thought, no, no, I'm so upset. But I knew in my heart that it was actually for the best because I knew I was overtraining running. So I went to a specialist and she said, why don't you get strong? And then we'll see if you'll be able to run again. And then I met a trainer who introduced me to kettlebells. And my relationship with kettlebells was, I hate this. What are these? These suck. But then it turned into a love of kettlebells as I grew in skill and competence and strength. And for women in particular, building strength is um, very empowering. Well, I, I know some of the things that you focus on uh, in helping leaders and helping CEOs and certainly those organizations that you we mentioned earlier. I, I guess I, what I, what I kind of wanted to start was I've been, I've been helping a lot of companies and seeing a lot of founders struggling to really be the CEO, right? Yeah. To really become the person who can run. So they got the idea and they got the passion and they got the spark. But what what has to happen, do you think, for them to really successfully transition into being the CEO for the organization? Yeah, it, it's such the on-point question because founders come to their companies because of their love for the product or the market or whatever it is. 
So what I help them do is become not just in love with the product, but in love with building a business. And as I talk about in my book, From Startup to Grown Up, it really happens in three dimensions, managing you, managing them, and then managing the business. So you've got to manage your own psychology and your own kind of self-awareness about how you're showing up as a leader. You've got to learn the tools to manage the team. And you have to keep in mind the importance of showing progress and momentum as you're building the business. Yeah, and, and that can be difficult for some people. That can be not natural. Um, I certainly have noticed there are people who are incredibly passionate and 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 just terrific at what they do, which is why the business was started, right? Why the business was there. But then you get into sort of the like the real nuts and bolts of running the business, the compliance, the thinking about uh, your the staff and the people and the clients, and the partnerships. I mean, it gets complex, right? Totally. And so and and they stumble. So. I'm usually like, hey, if it doesn't feel like a natural fit, maybe you should bring somebody in to be the CEO if you're not naturally that person. But there does always seem to be this maybe opposition to that. Have you seen that? Oh, definitely. You know, in some ways, in many ways, the founder is like the spiritual leader. And so it's meaningful when the founder is able to build as a leader and grow as a leader and continue to be the CEO for a while, maybe, you know, for a long time in the company. Also, I would just say that Many founders take it as like a personal goal to lead a company as it gets bigger and bigger and ultimately maybe gets acquired or, or has some sort of uh, an exit and IPO. I agree with you that if anybody is sort of not doing their natural skill set, their natural zone of genius, they should find someone else to do it. That is absolutely true. At the same time, you think about founders, especially first-time founders, the entry-level job of any founder is leader, is the boss. And so they should have the opportunity to learn the things that they don't necessarily come naturally to them and see if they like it once they get the right tools and frameworks. And so it's always that balance between try it on, be a little uncomfortable, try something new, learn, and only then decide if you don't like it. And, and I think the other difficulty that most of us have if we've been in a, start, a position where we started a company and we have an idea and we're going to grow it, is that when we start, we're typically wearing a lot of hats, right? And and that's a good thing maybe in the beginning, and maybe that's just a necessary thing. But, you know, we're doing a little bit of everything. And then suddenly becomes this point, you grow and you add some people, maybe you get uh, funding, maybe you get uh, influx of cash, whatever that may be, and you suddenly need to bring in people. And now you need to start letting things go, right? You need to start delegating. Um, what are some advice that you might give to people on how to, to to get to that point where they really can learn how to delegate. Because I know for me, like I didn't, and I was really bad at it, Then I had to learn how to get good at it. And now I'm just like, hey, I got this thing. Who wants it? Who wants it? Who, I'm happy to like to, to delegate because I have a team that's awesome. They're going to do a way better job at most of the things that I ever would. Yeah. That, didn't, that wasn't how it was, right? And so what, what, how, how do you think founders or CEOs should think about that delegation piece? Founders, certainly it's common to have a difficult time letting go of their Legos, letting go of their baby and, and letting things go. So that is definitely normal. I would say if I had to boil it down to two tips, I would say this. Number one, assess the person you're delegating to and assess how experienced they are, how inexperienced they are, how much knowledge they have, how much maybe the knowledge they need to gain so that you're not just being delegating in a vacuum and then abdicating. You're really giving them the right amount of supervision based on their skill sets and kind of who they are. 
The second is with you and them together, decide what done looks like. People sort of delegate something and just say, okay, go do that thing. And they don't talk about when it's due, what a, sort of a finished product would look like. So they agree together on what done looks like and they don't, they don't do that. And then it comes back like, oh, this wasn't good. Well, because you didn't agree what the project in its fulfill, fulfilled state would look like. So right. with those two, there's a lot more delegation, but if you just do those two things, you're halfway down the path. Yeah, and, and I think I've, I've given the advice, like, you know, if you can clearly articulate what success is, if you're going to delegate, then make sure that you tell that person what you think the su success of that project is, right? I mean, Definitely. Going to go get a new CRM. Well, I'm going to delegate this to you, but just so you know, we can't take it on unless it's in this budget, it integrates with these platforms, like if whatever it is you know as the founder, you got to communicate that, right? And then maybe communicate, well, what what would happen if we failed? Right. So what are the things I'm worried about? So go do this thing. Here's what I know is going to make it success. Here's what I know could cause us to fail. And then the third step, and I think it's the hardest one, is trust. It's just to say, now I trust you to do it. You don't need my permission anymore. You don't need me to approve 500 ways down the line. Just do it. Like We've clearly painted the picture or enough of it. Now you go fill in the rest and I don't need. And I find like that drawing that line in the sand, like, I don't want you to come back and ask me, is this okay 500 times? Like, then we're not really delegating. I'm still holding your hand or I'm still sort of monitoring it. I don't know. Right. And also <laughs> it's like, do this task and then come back to me, do this task and then come back to me. And then you can't ever check it off your list. And so I think mm -hmm. that's super, what you've talked about is very important. It's essential. And then it comes back to, does this person have it in them to be able to take it at that level? And then also, what is the cost of um, a problem, like the cost of failure or the cost of a bad decision? And if you can figure that up front, it gives you a lot more capacity to trust people. In general, most decisions can be reversed or are not that costly if they're not done perfectly the way you might do it yourself. And, you know, I just remember, I, I tell the story sometimes to like new leaders. I remember my grandfather when I was learning how to drive a car, he got in and he just said, all right, let's go. And he didn't give me any instructions and he didn't like micromanage the process. He would give me things. He would say things if he noticed some things. And he would just say, well, I, I just know you're going to be a good driver and I trust you. And sometimes he would like put the seat back and like, he was going to go to sleep. And I'm, I'm like 15 and a half going, what is this guy doing? Like, does he not understand that I'm about to crash this car at any moment? But he exuded so much trust in me. He, yeah. he, he pointed things out when he's, when they were appropriate. And, oh, make, be careful with this. He would give me his advice. But I felt so confident because he was so confident. Your grandfather right? was a brave man. That's first of all. <laughs> but I think your point is so accurate. You're talking about confidence and trust. That is accurate. That is really important for people. And also what I think that founders and leaders fail to deliver is positive feedback. Mm -hmm. I know you can do it. Good job. Building confidence in yourself, which then helps you take the ball and run with it. And that helps other people build confidence in you as well. Right. Well, one of the other big things that uh, founders and, and leaders need to do well is hire the right people. Um, especially as you're starting the company. Um, so what are some things you you suggest that, you know, people that you work with, they should be thinking about with, with those, uh, you know, really key hires? Yeah, with the key hires, first of all, it starts with like a real strong, robust understanding of what you're trying to hire for. 
Sometimes job descriptions are so generic as to be ununderstandable. You really want to be clear about how you picture this person being successful. I think actually a great way to do that is for a few weeks, capture the accomplishments that this person will be doing. And that will help you kind of back, you know, sort of back test your way into the skills they need. That's like number one, to get clear on what you're looking for. And then the second is don't fall in love with a resume. When you go through the hiring process, ask them questions that will pull out the qualities you're looking for and will actually provide evidence for you that they've done this before. And when you do, when you talk with their references, don't ask what are they great at, what do they need to get better at, strengths and weaknesses. Ask them specifically again about the qualities and factors and criteria you're looking for, and and ask your references to give evidence that they've seen this before. Or the person has the capacity for that. That way, it gets you out of the "I liked him, did you like him?" kind of decision making that a lot of founders tend to do. Yeah, and that's that. It's kind of hard to do that. It's kind of hard. It's almost um, we want to look at the resumes. I just think like so many like key hires, it wasn't really the resume. And it wasn't really like we just magically found them. There was some connector, right? We kind of knew what we wanted and we kind of knew people out there in the world that maybe sort of knew someone who would like that, you know, what we were kind of trying to to find. Rarely at, at those kind of key positions was I looking through a hundred resumes and just magically finding that, you know, totally. and hoping it would happen, right? Totally. Like networking and asking around, it first of all gets you into a whole candidate pool that like are actually pre-vetted by people you know. And also mm -hmm. it helps you crystallize what you're looking for because they may give you feel like, oh, I don't understand what you mean by that. And then you help you crystallize and give more details what you're looking for. So it helps you actually refine the hiring process. Well, I know you like to talk about a uh, structure and so uh, even structure being sexy. So why is that? Why is structure sexy? Yes. Is, isn't it self-evident? Um, <laughs> structure is sexy because structure creates forward motion and success and success is sexy. So the way I think about that is when you have structured your meeting, then everybody looks at meetings like that was so useful and not what's often happening, which is that was a waste of time. And you don't have a lot of time to waste in your company, right? There's, these are expensive rooms. Structure is sexy because it, it lives in a dashboard that tells you at a moment's glance what's working and not working inside of your company and helps you pinpoint what you need to do to fix it. So I think about structure as being the, the rocket fuel that empowers momentum and traction and ultimate victory. Yeah. And, and there's always that, uh, you know, how much structure do we just create the skeleton, right? Do we create the framework or do we, or is structure creating the entire environment? And I've seen in some organizations, it's really important for that structure to be very simple, right? And letting the employees sort of fill in the rest. And then other places where that structure has to be so well thought out, right? It's just almost a completely curated environment for everybody involved in order for that to work. I mean, right. certainly a, ho a hospital needs to be a fairly curated experience and, and and overly structured in order for it to work well and to be safe and, and all that. But yet in maybe some other kind of context, we could be fairly open to what that structure means, right? And so we have to really think about that as, as leaders into what, what are we really doing and and how much has to go in there. I'm always an advocate for doing the, I don't want to say the least amount of structure, but not over, overbearing totally. you know, the structure there, right? Yeah, as light as you need. And then as, or I should say as heavy as you need, but as light as possible, right? So you want to design something that is simple enough also for people to use. 
And then I would just add that it's obvious that the structure you need in a 20 person company is different from 200, is different from 2000 or 20,000. And so when you can see everybody in the same room, you just need less structure. But when that fails, that when, when ultimately you, you have different rooms and different conference rooms, different meetings, you need ways to tie things together. That's where structure becomes super important. Well, and, and part of that structure sometimes for leaders can be uh, the use of dashboards. Uh, how can leaders best use those? Well, dashboard, I do love dashboards. I'd love me a good dashboard. And really the reason it's so powerful is because you can see at a moment's notice what's going on inside of your company. But even more fundamentally, it requires you to think about if I could only look at five key metrics to know how the company is doing, what would I look at? That is a very powerful question for you to ask yourself as a leader and for you to ask your leaders around you. And by the way, you might get different answers. That's interesting. But ultimately, you really want to have it serve as a galvanizing and aligning force so that we all know what the key factors are, the most important factors. And then we also know how we're doing very specifically up to the minute on those key factors. You know, you, you just said something that kind of resonated with me. It's like trying to figure out what are those key things that you really want to see and want to do. Because I've seen a lot of people try to create dashboards and give data to executives, but that isn't necessarily what is important, right? It's not necessarily what they need to look at. I mean, maybe for some executives, you know, sales is going to be important or maybe it's website visits or maybe it's hires or, or you know, the sort of the churn rate we might be having in a big organization. Are we losing a lot of people? Or are we doing too much hiring? I mean, there could be lots of different factors that, that may give them a clue as to how healthy or unhealthy their business might be. Yeah, without a doubt, I would just say even like this notion of sales. I worked with a company once and what they were tracking was sales. That sounds reasonable. But when you really got into it, we layered into it. And what we found was he's got a certain number of salespeople. They're all making their calls and making their meetings. And if everybody closed one sale per month, they would get to where they needed to go. So how do you do that? X number of calls per month to get to the one close per month. And then it was the key metric was not sales. How are we doing? Which masked a whole bunch of productivity questions. It's how many calls is this sales team doing per month? That turned out to be the key metric. That's not because I said so. That's because we actually did the, the deep work in looking at the business to understand what moves the needle for this business. Yeah. And then, you know, the executives have to be careful because we can, we can come up and say, when they were doing really well, they made a hundred calls. Let's just say a hundred, let's say a thousand. They made a thousand calls this month, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that a thousand and two hundred is better. It could mean that a thousand is the equilibrium. It's that perfect moment between they've done enough work, but they still have enough time to close the deals and get things done and do everything else they need to do. Because I've seen people say, well, thousand's good, then we got to do two, we'll do two thousand. And then they start doing two thousand and now the whole thing's broken, right? Right. And it's not working. <laughs> right. Great point. That's a great point, actually. Yeah. yeah. A lot of leaders, I think, are probably, I, I saw them kind of take a step back during during the pandemic when we were all had to go home and all of that, right? And they were able to actually sit and think a little more. They were actually able to connect with their people a little bit more. Um, a lot of businesses were a little bit slower and the work was, and so they had a little more time, right? They didn't have commutes and all that. And I noticed that they were able to to kind of connect with their teams in ways that they hadn't ever really in years past. I mean, and a lot of companies brought on Zoom or Teams or whatever, which they didn't have before. And now all of a sudden they weren't having to fly across the Atlantic to go sit with a group of people. They could just do it on, the, on video. So I was hearing from people, 
that they felt more connected. That leaders at the highest levels were saying they felt more connected, we had more face time with people than they ever had before. Is that a good thing? I'm assuming you're going to say yes, but and if it is, how do we keep that going, right? How do we not go back to the old way of like, you're lucky if you could get five minutes with, you know, your 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 boss and and hope that you might get their attention on something for, you know, getting a little more of this quality over, uh, you know, quality time with 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 those people that matter in the organization. Yeah, you know, it's it's such a good question. Of course, it's so significant that first of all, in addition to what you just said about all the logistics, right? Um, and like the friction of travel removed. Also, um, it was a difficult time. So leaders mm-hmm. were doing a much better job of checking in with their people. So now let's assume that we're on the march back to normal. How do leaders keep up that same amount of empathy? And even if we do spend more time traveling or do kind of things like that, how do you remember how important it was to really ask somebody, how are you doing? Because it's not about you know, it's it's not about like even quantity, as you said, it's really about connectedness. So it's about suddenly mm-hmm. the leaders were staying more connected to their teams. And then what leaders need to do is remember that feeling, ask questions, remind themselves that small talk before a meeting is actually super helpful, make time for those one-on-ones and have their leaders do the same because employees don't always have to be connected to the CEO. They need to be connected to their leaders and managers as well. So building a culture on that connectedness, that's how it really matters. That's what makes a difference. Well, unfortunately, we are all out of time. Uh, certainly, I've learned a, a great deal from you. I'd love to have you come back to the show at some point and keep the conversation going. But the most important question before we go is, how can people find out more about you? Where should they go look for you online? They can find me at alyssacone.com. And you can, in my book, From Startup to Grown Up, I have 14 scripts to help you have delicate conversations. On my website, I have five additional scripts to help you have delicate or difficult conversations. You can find them at alyssacone.com slash scripts. You can also find me on Twitter at Alyssa Cohn or find, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. And for anyone who might need the help, because I know I would, uh, A-L-I-S-A is how you spell her first name and C-O-H-N is the last name. So uh, both of those you might have not guessed perfectly the first time. So hopefully that helps you out. But then uh, thank you again for being on the show. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break and bring in my second guest, Troy Nix. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Town Talk Radio Show. In case you missed my first guest, you can check out Alyssa's interview on the podcast on iTunes. Uh, You can also go to TownTalkRadio.com on Podbean, iHeart, everywhere. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, 
wherever you find me uh, out of the show, make sure you subscribe. You can uh, check out that. And then you can also uh, make sure that you can get the uh, copy of uh, the interview of my next guest, which I'm uh, excited to bring in, which is Troy Nix, founder, president, and CEO of First Resource Inc., an innovative associated association management company for America's manufacturer. Uh, Troy, welcome to the show today, sir. Hey, Chris, thanks a lot, man. I've been really looking forward to this. It's an absolute pleasure to, to meet you. Well, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you? What did I miss? What's important for us to know about what you're passionate about for our conversation today? Wow, what am I passionate about? That That's like the all the above. Just <laughs> passionate about life, man. Hey, just a, a little bit on a little bit of background so the uh, the listeners and viewers can better understand where I came from. But uh, graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in the uh, mid 80s and uh, had an opportunity to serve our great country. And from there, I, I did a stint in uh, U.S. manufacturing. I learned how things were made. And uh, while I was doing that, I uh, started up a little home based business, was able to sell that. And uh, from then on, I would say about 30 years old, I just wanted to run something. And, uh, so for the last 25 years, I've created uh, three different companies. And uh, right now, uh, First Resource, which is my association management company, uh, runs three national trade associations in manufacturing. And so each and every day, which is really cool, I get the opportunity to engage with senior leaders. And I'll tell you what, it's like every day I'm getting an MBA on the job. Uh, watching uh, very, very skilled professionals and leaders uh, lead through adversity, uh, like we've been experiencing, especially for the last two years. So it gives, gives you kind of a, a skill sense. I, I guess uh, roughly 1,250 manufacturing companies under our umbrella. So there's a lot of learning that we do each and every day. Yeah, yeah well, it sounds like uh, you have always been on the path of, I guess, learning what's important, learning from the best. Uh, certainly West Point is a good place to start. Uh, and then uh, being able to translate that into all the different things that you've done. So I'm excited to kind of pick your brain here, which is what this show is all about, is to try to learn and, and understand what other leaders are doing and maybe some of the things we should be thinking about, we should be putting our attention towards. But and my first question is, what are some of the ways leaders can can help employees deal with you know, today's other sort of larger demand? And I think a big demand that has been on a lot of people's minds is customers, right? Uh, we've seen a higher demand of customers expecting. This might be the the influence of Apple, right? We sort of gave everyone like this perfect interface and people just expected it to work the first time, right? And so we, we've started to really see client customers expect perfection and transparency and all of these things from us. But so they've become a little more demanding. So how, how do we help our employees deal with that? Well, before I go there, Chris, I got to ask you. So when's the last time you've been to a fast food restaurant where you've driven up to the window and they've been closed because there's nobody to work? Or better yet, you go up and you order uh, maybe a hamburger and you ask for maybe ketchup or what have you. And they're like, we don't have that. And it's unheard of, isn't it? Right. When's the last? I mean, just it's a constant thing. And so I actually think our expectations of customers, right, being a customer is actually, I think, Everybody's getting a little bit more patient, maybe. I know that's odd, but would you say yes or no to that? Well, I think because of the pandemic, we got a little more patient with people. We understood about staffing needs and supply chain issues. And so we maybe we're a little more there. I've noticed that on the retail side. On the service side of all, I've noticed the opposite. They were getting more demanding, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you what, it's interesting because I knew you were going to zing that question in terms of how how to deal with the, these customers that are angry and, and kind of where does it all start? One of the things that I think is important, especially uh, I'm thinking you might have a lot of small business owners that, that listen to this, maybe department leaders. I, I guess it doesn't matter what leadership you role, but in my organization, everybody faces the customer. And so it's on a daily basis where there could be conflicts and my employees have to handle those conflicts. So it's interesting because I knew you were going to ask the question. I actually sat down with one of my longer term employees this morning and I asked, hey, you know what, you know, what do you think that we're doing internally uh, to help our employees better deal with angry customers? And she said something very interesting and I, I wouldn't have uh, gauged it. I wouldn't have approached the question like this, but she said, it starts in the hiring process, Troy. Like we train our people uh, first and foremost in our hiring process is we make sure that people understand our, our values, they align with our values and understand the core competence of dealing with our customers because without our customers, we don't have a business. But upfront, we align values. And so that when our employees are on the front lines, they pretty much know that they have the ability to make decisions on the spot and they will not be undercut by me or anybody else. Extreme ownership and decision-making, extreme ownership in dealing with the frontline customer. We, we deal with that right up front. Anytime we onboard a new employee, they know and we provide them the tools to deal with almost any situation. I love that. I love that. And that's really the uh, similar philosophy of Southwest Airlines is that they they provide incredible training, but they tell the you know the employees, you have the right to make that decision. If you think that you're doing the right thing for the client, we will back you up. Now, privately, they might have to retrain them or explain to them how they want them to make the decision differently next time. But publicly, you will never see Southwest Airlines get up on the, you know, on a, on a newspaper or radio and say, well, that employee screwed up. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because as I was talking to, uh, I call I call all, all my employees, we're all team members with one another. We support one another. And she told me today, she's like, we've been in situations where maybe the employee hasn't necessarily been right or 100% right in difficult situations, but we deal with that after the fact, not during, because during, these are my soldiers, man. And I got my soldiers back because in the long term, Right. You, you can. I, I understand everybody wants to keep their customers. And man, when I started my business 25 years ago, I begged a lot. I'll be honest with you. If I had to do all, all <laughs> over again, I probably wouldn't have begged as much. But man, when you need to feed your family, right, you need right. any bit. I got to keep the lights on, man. I need this customer. But I probably would have done a little bit differently. But even with that said, what's it worth, especially in this day and age where you can't find talent, can't find loyal people, can't find people that want to get up in the morning? I have people that do. And so I'm going to protect my base because my base has to last for years and years and years. That customer can come and go. I can always find another one. I can't find necessarily another one of my employees that are here. All, all of my employees, for the most part, are long-term people. So we've got a significant investment. So that's it, man. I got the back of my troops. You know, and you have to figure out what's the right cadence with a demanding customer. You know, sometimes demanding customers push us and help us get better. And they help us see, you know, where we where where our faults are or our shortcomings are because they want us to provide something even better than what we had anticipated. And I think that's okay. If demanding clients who maybe 
you know, uh, they expected something and, the, and our employees didn't quite deliver. And so we have to figure that out. No problem. Also demanding customers, though, that might be you know crossing a line. So I always want to sort of remind leaders that if you think that client has crossed a line and they're being unreasonable or they're being unkind or, you know, you got to remember to protect your people, too. And sometimes you got to tell a customer to pound sand and let them go if they're not going to fall in line with your values Right. And what you think is important for your customer, for your, for your employees. Right. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because it's this concept of continuous learning. And that's the other thing in this conversation this morning uh, that was brought up is that we do constantly learn and we force ourselves to learn. So we do these things from the military called after action reports on virtually everything that goes on in our organization. So if we hold an event, something virtual or or something goes down, we will huddle in the hallway, huddle around a conference table, do Zoom and say, okay, what was expected to happen? What did happen? And how do we improve the outcome? And we document everything. So we're constantly learning. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That that learning environment. And so here's here's an example that illustrates a learning opportunity for a pizza shop owner. I'm just going to throw this out there. So one would think it's only a pizza, right? It's just a pizza. And you might have somebody that's uh, 19 years old that's making the pizza. That angry customer is a mother, a single mother, uh, maybe has three children. And the only only night out that she gets is going to buy pizza one, one night a week. And she asks the, the pizza parlor to keep the cheese off because all her kids are dairy intolerant. And all right. of a sudden, she takes her pizza home one night a week. She looks forward to, and now she's irate. So to me, there's a learning opportunity for that pizza parlor owner to sit down with the employees and to further help them understand why people actually buy that product. Some some actually look forward to it. It's special to them. And I think that when you align those values, and this is that concept of a leader, okay, you get an angry customer, and then you find out why they're angry, to then translate that anger so that you can educate your employees that are dealing one-on-one with that customer to say, oh, I get it, you know, better understand that. And then I think you, if you can better understand a customer that is unsatisfied or where you haven't met, met their expectation, somebody who's willing to take that step to better understand them is better often able to meet their needs in the long term too. Providing customer stories, right? Why, why is it that they do what they do? And whether that's a good thing, right? Why do they buy from us? And what value do they get? And what is that, why is that important too? Well, what happened when we failed, right? What ha- how what impact did that have on that family or that customer or whatever it was when we didn't meet our expectations or our promise to our clients? Having your employees know that, right? And hearing those stories is the I think the only real way for them to truly understand because we can sit up at the top as the business owner and understand that, right? We created the company because we understood the needs, we understood the the value in the marketplace. But our average employee, if they don't get that, Right? How could we possibly expect them to do it the way we want them to do it or deliver the way we want them to deliver if they don't understand the story, right? If they don't understand how it impacts others. And I think there's often a big disconnect between the C-suite right, yeah. and the average person doing it if they're not bringing those stories together. Chris, you are you are hammering this, man. This is really good. <laughs> so this, this is interesting, and I, I don't know if everybody can see this or not, but I'm holding a piece of paper. And this this piece of paper basically outlines... Uh, my leader's intent. This is my philosophy on how I deal with people. 
this is these are my expectations this is baggage that i've i've basically accumulated my entire life and it's on a piece of paper so that when you're a new employee in this operation i try to bring some of those stories and share so you know exactly what you're dealing with so i'm going to read this it's the concept of ownership so i have four different or five different areas on this piece of paper and under the concept of ownership here's what i explain i value people who take full ownership of their results the results of the relationships the results of their lives and the results of their work don't complain don't explain own not only what you touch but own everything in your perimeter so obviously a little military speak there but i will tell you my first day in the academy at west point uh july the 1st 1983 indoctrination day i get into the tunnels and i start to talk and they're like uh-uh and they had some explicitives and things like that right but four responses to any given scenario yes sir no sir sorry to not understand and no excuse sir that's it it didn't matter if you were going through an inspection and the guy next to you didn't shine his shoes correctly and the commanding officer looked at you and said hey nix What's up with your buddy? Hey, that's my fault, man. I should have saw that. It's in my perimeter, and I should have helped my buddy understand the fact that he had a defect, and I needed to fix that. And you realize that that concept that's drilled into you in the militaries, that's, those small little defects oftentimes cost lives. So I try to bring that into my own operation and say, hey, man, you own everything. And because you own everything, I'm going to back you up. You're my soldiers. I'm backing you wherever you go. So that's one concept is that when we have new people, and then I also go over this continually, it's like, and then I have other people in my organization that have their own leader philosophies. So we know where each other's coming from so we can be on the same page, man. Because that's the worst you can do is, is the new employees over here and you're over here. It's like, why? Why let that happen? Let them know where you are. And I can almost, uh, I can almost assure that you already know I'm intense, right? And I talk about work <laughs> ethic. I talk about character. This concept of honesty and integrity, I will not tolerate anything that lacks integrity in this organization. So people on their first day, they know that. And they know that in the interview process. Uh, it's so refreshing. You kind of have stories, right? You have this uh, way to sort of, I think that's a way that we can really help our people understand is we can give them a story, something that really happened to demonstrate the points. One thing for you to say, hey, you see it, you own it. Um, okay, well, what does that mean? But when you when you gave me the example of the you know person next to you, you you could have observed that they weren't ready for inspection. You could have seen that, and you could have told them, helped them. You could have done something about it, right? And not just said, "Well, that's not my problem. It's not my thing to do. I don't have to worry about that." But that's exactly where all the problems happen. People see things all the time. Good organizations are there, calling that stuff out, fixing those things, working you know, as a group as best they can to move forward. And bad organizations are hiding, deflecting, right, avoiding, and, you know, and they either die or I guess they have a really fantastic idea or product. They last for a while, but they don't, you know, they don't do as well as they could yeah, in those know, situations. I, I'm glad you brought that up because there's something that hit me right there. So, you know, we do a lot of conventions. We, we hold conferences for large numbers of people. And before our conference, we'll do this thing called a script. And everybody in the organization is part of the script. A two and a half day conference might have a 55 page script that is minute by minute. Where are you? What are you doing? What you're responsible for? 
And the reason we do that is we believe that the, that the, the, I guess the aspect and the process of planning is where all the education comes from. It's really not the end document, but it's the result of getting to the end document. So I bring this up because it's that concept where it's not my job. Those words are never spoken in this organization. It's not my job. Now we have roles and responsibilities, but I'll clean the windows, change coffee, load paper, do whatever I need to do. And I think leading from the front in some respects, you don't have to do it all the time, but nothing is beneath me, nothing. And I've been doing this for a long time. And I've yeah. got some people that work for me where I'm almost, oh, I hate to say it, two and a half times older than they are, right? <laughs> but <laughs> as a leader, nothing's beneath me. I'll get my hands dirty. And I think that's important. So I bring this script up as an example, because in our last conference, we had an issue that took out, we actually had a death, Chris a death during our event. It's the mm. first time in my history. And all of a sudden I lose my managing director is gone just like that. We don't know where she is. We don't know what she's doing. She's taking care of the situation. But because of that, nobody looked around and said, well, that's not my job to get that $40,000 keynote speaker to the stage. No, no. And everybody just, we just filled in like water fills in the basement when you don't want it to. But that's what my people did in a good way because nobody says it's not my job. And that's the culture of this organization is ultimately the service to customer. And we had 525 of them in a basically a 48 hour time period that we had to service and we had to do it at a world class level. Not my job doesn't cut it. And that's, you know, it doesn't just happen overnight and it's not just saying these things to our people that creates this environment, right? It's a combination of teaching them, of demonstrating it, but it's that practice over and over and over again. And I'm not sure that the average person gets that training or gets that education about how, how to really formulate a leadership plan that way. I think it probably makes total sense to you coming out of West Point because you observed a process, right? As a, as a baseline and you could, iterate from there into the private sector. But I mean, as a baseline, you had something that the average person doesn't have. Maybe they get a little bit out of sports, right? I remember getting you know the lessons of things that happen when you're, you're in sports. But even that is a little bit, do what I say because I said so. Not so much, here, let me help you understand why this is important and, and help you understand what to do and when, uh, uh, as if it's your own idea coming from your own energy, not just, well, Troy told me I had to go do this, therefore I'm going to do it, right? Yeah, I hear what you're saying, and I, I will attribute it to, you know, I ha I've had uh, awesome leadership training, but I'm going to, I'll put uh, the leaders on the spot, or I'll put everybody listening on the spot right now. It's this concept of every situation affords you the opportunity to uh, listen and learn, watch and learn. So I'll give you a, a prime example. I think I'm a decent leader, but I fail every day. Um, but it's that concept of being self-aware. And I look at myself in the mirror all the time and judge myself. How am I doing? And I'm not doing well right now. I will tell you, I'm, I'm not doing well. But here's a perfect example of how I learned. So I had this uh, convention. Uh, he was running the, uh, he's a general manager of the, one of the major Marriott's uh, down here in Indianapolis. And uh, interestingly enough, I'm having a meeting one day because I didn't get service the way I wanted. This is a couple of years ago. I, I didn't get, to, we didn't get service the way we needed to. So kind of working through some issues. And during this, when I pulled into the parking lot, I was greeted by CIA, FBI, uh, Kevlar uh, policemen, state troopers. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, it just so happened on that day, the vice president of the United States was in town and he happened to be in the hotel. 
So things were absolutely crazy. I sit down with Keith. I'm like, man, why didn't you cancel this meeting? He goes, Troy, you're an important customer of mine. My people have this. I was like, oh, okay. So we're going through and he's talking about ups and downs and managing the business and and totally revamping the hotel and this and that. And this is a guy I look to. And it's like, man, he's got a he's got a lot of responsibilities. So I get to the point there. So I go out to get my car, right? I give my ticket to the valet. Key's sitting there talking to me. And um, the the guy comes with my car and he gets out of the car and gives me my ticket. And and I'm like, hey, son. And he's only like 20 years old, right? I said, uh, that's my not my car. I said, if it if it was better than my car, I'd take that one, but it's not. <laughs> and Keith, Keith is standing right there and he's like, oh my gosh. And so uh, the kid looked at the ticket and he reversed two numbers. And so the kid went back in the car to get my car and Keith looked at me, Chris, and he said, Troy, I'm really sorry. This is all my fault. He said, what did you just say? He said, this is all my fault. I said, how can the valet driver who brought me the wrong car be your fault? This is a leader, Chris. And he said, had I had enough forethought of the stress that my valets would have been under, I would have double stacked. It's a national security issue every time they get a car and they're feeling the pressure, Troy. He said, so I've learned from this. And I thought about this concept of extreme ownership and how he was able to take this tense situation because I'm a major customer, right? And to say, no, it's my fault. I should have done this. And I should have slowed my valet down. Hey, man, I could have just gotten my car and drove away and never reflected again on that situation. But I'll tell you what I did. I got in my car and I drove away and I started thinking of recent events that had happened to me where internally I was pointing my fingers at the failure of my people when the failure ultimately rested on my shoulders. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So I learn from people all the time, man. That was a great yeah. learning experience. And because of that, I now look at extreme ownership. When there are failures in my organization, I look at there's a process failure because my employees don't come to work wanting to do a bad job. And I think first and foremost, if you're running anything or if you're a manager or whatever, I think first and foremost, people don't get out of the bed in the morning before their feet hit the ground and say, I want to do a bad job today. <laughs> right? right? That's right. So when a major flaw happens, I think you have to look at the flaw and say, hey, where did the process go wrong and how do we improve the process and then educate on that process to make sure it's followed? I certainly have learned a great deal from you today. I would love to have you come back at some point and keep the conversation uh, going with me here on the show. Uh, But unfortunately, we are all out of time. So I want to make sure we ask the most important question is that how can people find out more about you? Where should they look? What website should they visit? Well, what's the best place for them to do that? I, I appreciate the, the selfless promotion here, Chris, but uh, <laughs> I have my book and it's called Eternal Impact, rolled it out uh, in March of 2020. And you can find out more about me at uh, troynix.com and where you can kind of listen to some of the videos that I have in the marketplace. I'm a keynote speaker. And first and foremost, the reason I do all this is I have my own personal mission statement and that is to impact as many people as I can while, I, while I'm here on this earth. Well, I love it. It's a fantastic message, Troy. And again, thank you so much for being such a great guest today and giving us so many fantastic insights. Uh, Thank you to everyone who's been uh, listening to the show, whether you listened live or got us after the fact. We really appreciate your support. Don't forget to subscribe and comment and like uh, what we're putting out there so we know who you are. And uh, most importantly, until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. 
You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.